Well, here we are on communicable attributes of God, and today um, I want to talk about God's freedom and um, omnipotence or power and perfection, and maybe we'll get to these last attributes, blessedness, beauty, and glory, and then we'll be done with, I don't know how many weeks I've been talking about attributes of God, and I think we can finish that this time, and then... uh, go on uh, next week to start talking about the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity will probably take us two weeks anyway. All right, we're talking about today, if you have this outline, um, I did get to the end of preparation last night and I thought, oh well, why not do a handout? So we, um, so we have this God's attribute of will we did last time, uh, and that's the whole first page and some of the second page on your handout. So you have that from last week. And now we're going over to page two in the middle. Freedom, God's freedom is that attribute of God whereby he does whatever he pleases. Would you like to be that way? (laughs) You would like to do whatever you please, wouldn't you? Well, he's made us so that we can imitate that to some degree. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. But... um, First of all, uh, Psalm 115, verse 3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Um, Or Daniel 4.35, all the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. He does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? In other words, this idea is that God is completely free to choose to do whatever he wants to do. Now, now, actually, uh, we'll come in a few minutes to say when we have God's power, so he has power to do what he wants to do too, but there are constraints on this. Uh, God isn't free to do things that are contrary to his character. And there's an analogy in our human existence. Um, I, I suppose I, I have the physical ability to pick up this podium, start smashing it to bits, and instead of teaching the class, just do a kind of a tribal war chant or something until all of you scratch your heads and walk away. I physically could do that, but I'm not going to. Why? Because it'd be stupid and there's something in my character that say, no, that isn't, that isn't the right thing to do. Okay, so um, uh, we, our freedom is also constrained by who we are, by our personalities, by our characters. And so there are things that you could physically do, but you won't do because they're not who you are. And so uh, it's infinitely that way with God. He's free to do whatever he wants, but he doesn't want to do anything that's evil or wrong or that would contradict his character. So all of God's attributes modify all of God's other attributes, and his freedom is a just freedom and a truthful freedom and a holy freedom, um, an eternal freedom. Um, It's it's, uh, it's modified by every other attribute. But it's a very important attribute because it says that uh, God is free to do as he wishes. Now, <clears throat> we've talked about in all these attributes, the theme I keep coming back to is God has made us so that he allows us to imitate these attributes to some extent. Uh, God is wise. Well, he enables us to be wise. Not infinitely wise, but somewhat wise. And God is infinitely knowledgeable. He enables us to have knowledge, not infinite knowledge, but some knowledge. And so with freedom, we can imitate this to some degree as well. We imitate God's freedom by our ability to make choices and to decide things for ourselves. In fact, God frequently appeals to our ability to choose. This is one passage, but there are many in the Bible like this. 
Joshua says to the people of Israel, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it's evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom you will serve. Choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua is putting this choice before the people of Israel. Said, now choose. And that can be multiplied by hundreds of verses where God appeals to the people of Israel or in the New Testament, uh, Jesus appeals to people to decide. Uh, to to make a choice. And um, we go over to Matthew 11:28. 28. Uh, this is what you're going to be talking about, Ben, I guess. Uh, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Uh, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is appealing to people, saying, don't you want this? Don't you want to come to me and have this kind of life? Well, it's an appeal to our ability to choose. Uh, and there's an assumption that we have some measure of freedom. It's not infinite freedom like God has, but some measure of freedom. This pattern then in Scripture is the basis for establishing and supporting freedom of religion. Margaret and I were driving on the 101 um, just uh, west of I-17 yesterday, and we looked just north. Isn't that a new mosque being built there with the gold spires on it? And Margaret said, look at that, isn't that a mosque? And I said, yeah, that does look like a mosque. And my, and my response was, I'm glad to live in a country where people are free to build whatever house of worship that they want. Um, so I don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't want people to go to a mosque. I'd rather have them go to a church where Jesus is truly proclaimed and believed in. But I'm glad I live in a country where there's freedom to choose. And the assumption, the the fundamental conviction of freedom of religion is built into our system of government. So we have a First Amendment. Con Congress will, shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. That's based on an assumption that true adherence to a religious system has to be voluntary. It can't be compelled. And there's something in human hearts throughout history that said, oh, well, I hold to this one religion. This would be good for everybody. I'm going to try to force it on everybody who lives in my country. And even, uh, of course, Constantine, uh, when he became a Christian and imposed Christianity on the Roman Empire, that was the uh, temptation he succumbed, he succumbed to. And then through hundreds of years, uh, Christian influence was we have this state religion and we're going to, um, by various means, try to force people to be Christians, and uh, that has happened in other religions as, as well. But it was uh, finally, after the Reformation, in fact, that people realized, you know, this isn't a good idea to try to force people uh, to uh, um, support uh, even the Christian religion, even if it's true, but we have to allow freedom. And so this attribute of, of God, this attribute of God's, uh, God's freedom, gives us um, warrant for thinking, um, we should allow freedom of religion in uh, governmental systems. And so we have that, and we take it for granted, but it's not true in all countries of the world. I think it's true generally of Protestant, although, you see, we did have state Lutheran state churches in Northern Europe, in uh, Germany, in Sweden, in Norway, Lutheran state churches, and, of course, the Church of England is a state church 
in England. That doesn't really force anybody anymore, but it does. You, there is some tax money that goes to support it. And so I still disagree with that. I think that's um, not a good idea that we should have allow people to freely choose to support any religion and particularly to have allegiance to Christ. The doctrine of God's freedom as it finds imitation in our lives also allows us to respect our children's ability to choose. Now, don't you know, if you can think about, uh, some of you have young children, some of you a long time ago had young children, you have grandchildren like uh, uh, Bob and George Ann now, but from a very early age, children like to be able to choose for themselves, don't they? Um, I, now, I, I don't know how many times we would take our kids to Baskin Robbins for ice cream, and one of our sons, we knew he wanted bubblegum ice cream, which I think is horrible, but he thought it was great. So I know in advance he's going to choose bubblegum ice cream, but he doesn't want me to go choose it for him. He wants to go up to the counter and look and look, and then he says, oh, I think I'll get bubblegum ice cream, right? Sharon, you're remembering, right? They, they like to, and I... I think that's a really good quality in children. That when we see that happening, we should say, "Ah, there's a godlike quality, imitating God's freedom to choose to do whatever He wishes," and that grows in children. And I think it's it's good for us to to validate that and affirm it. Now, can that be used in wrong ways? Sure, because this is one of this is one of those parts of our humanity that is absolutely wonderful. Our freedom to choose. But it has great potential for misuse because we can be free to choose sin, to choose harmful things, to choose selfish things, um, but it's still a good thing. And uh, with regard to uh, our children coming to faith, we can encourage and teach our children from the Bible. We can pray for them, but we can't force them to be Christians. And uh, for many of you, I suppose, um, as you've watched children grow up, there have been times they say, I don't know, I'm really concerned. You know, where, where are they going to go spiritually? And, and then we pray for them and, and uh, hope over time that the good influence that we've given will, will bear fruit. And many, 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 many times it does. But we can't force this because they're free. And the example, of course, is um, even Jesus <clears throat> being the perfect teacher and the perfect friend had Judas, who was among his disciples, and chose to go the other way. Um, so uh, even the best influence in the world doesn't always guarantee that a person's heart is going to um, follow the example that is right there in front of him or in front of her. God has placed in all human beings a deep, deep, deep desire to be free to exercise a measure of self-determination regarding many aspects of our lives, including the rule of nations. And so this is, uh, this is uh, embodied in that famous declaration of Patrick Henry where he said, give me liberty or give me death, and the situation of the freedom from the tyranny, as the colonists saw it, of uh, George III of England. Um, and uh, that resonated in people's hearts because uh, nations have a sense that they want self-determination, not to be dominated by other nations. 
And I think that's why also this attribute of freedom, this in deep instinct of being able to choose, that this is why people instinctively feel that living under a dictatorship where they don't have freedom or being put in prison <clears throat> are so dehumanizing that they rob us of a very important godlike quality. Um, and I already talked about this, the desire for freedom is seen in children at an early age. It's a godlike quality imitating God's own freedom. But freedom can be abused and used to commit sin, and that's why societies make laws, make rules, uh, to keep people from using their freedom just to kill other people or steal and things like that. And um, that's why churches make rules to restrain uh, people's sinful conduct too. And uh, there are situations uh, which will be eventually subject to church discipline if people engage in um, sinful activity that becomes known and becomes a reproach to the church. So God's freedom, it's a wonderful attribute and one he has enabled us to imitate in significant measure and one we should be thankful for. Uh, yet uh, one that has great potential for misuse and requires a lot of responsibility on our part. Do you want to comment on that before, or any questions on that before I go on to another attribute? Do you like that? That God is free and he's made us to be free? Yeah, Bob. Wayne, how would you characterize these uh, radical Islamists uh, who convert? are inculcated with uh, hatred of Jews, yep. freedom, yep. really, uh, do they become young teenagers? Yeah. Uh, yep. Do you think that that innate desire for freedom has been driven out of them? Yeah, okay. Uh, so I'll just repeat for the sake of the tape, Bob's really relevant question regarding contemporary events. What about people in radical Islamic cultures? where uh, not all in those nations, but in some subgroups in these mosques and things have been inculcated with a desire to murder and advance their religion by violence and uh, especially to uh, hate and attempt to uh, drive out of existence the Jewish people. Um, what's going on there? Um, I, uh, I think that, inconsistent with what I've said, the desire of Islam, when it has had desire to impose its... Uh, religious system by force, it's violating this principle. That religious, religious adherence to be genuine must be voluntary. And uh, if it's not voluntary, my, my, my hunch is that there are millions upon millions upon millions of uh, Muslims who really don't like it, but they've got no choice. But they haven't chosen it. So they just they don't see any way out because family and society will just persecute them and perhaps kill them or drive them, ostracize them if they do go any other way. So they're like in prison. Um, but there's hope in that and that there's in their heart probably a desire to be able to choose and that gives opportunity ultimately for people to come to Christ uh, if the gospel is presented to them and you know perhaps great potential for revival among Muslim people. Uh, um, but there is, I mean, there's a combination of sin in our hearts that has a wrongful desire for power over others uh, that can take hold in some of those people and uh, can delight in misuse of power and in, uh, then actually there's a kind of a perverse delight in murdering other people and 
and and uh, abusing them. You see that in dictators, and so that can take hold in some people. And uh, it's just it's a combination of sin, and I think there's demonic influence that strengthens and solidifies it in people's lives too. Um, and uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10:20 that uh, what it's a, writing to a church that's filled with pagans, worship, you know, idol worship. He says he doesn't say this is just idol. It is just uh, it's just false. He says what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. <clears throat> that is, I think all false religions of the world have significant demonic components that give power to them, and uh, that's certainly the case here. And where you see. Um, a religion that imposes force, takes away freedom, is dehumanizing and spreads by violence and murder, that's not God's way. It's not like God. It's, a, it's, it's, it's the way of the enemy who wants to destroy everything that God has made. So, yeah, good. Okay, let's go on to the next uh, attribute. Um, that is God's omnipotence or power or uh, sovereignty. Um, is related to this. God's omnipotence means that God is able to do all his holy will. All his holy will. And then the word sovereignty is related to this. Sovereignty is what people usually mean to re- use to refer to God's use of his power to rule over creation. And he is sovereign and rules over creation. Now, um, Psalm 24, 8, Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Um, he's mighty. He's mighty in battle. Jeremiah 32, 17. Ah, Lord God, it is you who has made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Great power. Nothing is too hard for you. Or Ephesians 3.20 in the New Testament, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power that is at work within us. Um, you just imagine, whatever you could imagine that God could do, he could do more than that. Um, so God is all-powerful, and his power is far beyond our ability to comprehend. And Jesus, uh, in a situation, uh, repeated something like this. He says, uh, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are, are possible. Um, and so, um, so we have uh, infinite power. In God, and I don't think we can really comprehend what infinite power means. Um, with the, uh, I mean, thinking about the hundreds of billions of stars uh, in the universe, um, that gives us some sense of infinite power. But, um, but I don't think. But God could have made ten universes, the size that He made. I mean, a hundred? How many? Infinite number, I guess. Well, then our mind just short circuits. We, we can't can't figure it out. Um, but God cannot will or do anything that would deny his own character. So uh, God can't lie. Uh, Titus 1-2, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. He can't lie. It's contrary to his character. Um, If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Uh, That would deny his character. Or God cannot be tempted with evil in James 1.13. Uh, uh, God's power <clears throat> is constrained by his other attributes. <clears throat> and so this, um, this famous puzzling question, if God is all-powerful, can he make a rock so big that he can't move it? 
No. Uh, no, it's asking if he can do something that contradicts his character. No, he, there are a lot of things he can't do. Omnipotence isn't an unlim, isn't an un, uh, isn't omnipotence in every sense. It's omnipotence <clears throat> to do all that's consistent with his character and his will. He can do all that he wants to do, um, and um, so I'm sure he can make a rock so big that nobody else can move it. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, he can't will or deny his own character. Now again, um, we could spend weeks talking about God's power uh, in his creation and, and his power in answers to prayer, and I think that would be a worthwhile topic, but I'm not going to do that this morning. But as I've talked about all these attributes and said that God wants us to be imitators of him, Ephesians 5.1, in many ways, so now does God want us, has he made us in a way that we can imitate his power? Yes, I think so. Uh, God has given us a measure of power, not infinite power, but some power. He's given us power, physical power, um, the strength to be able to do things, <clears throat> mental power, spiritual power to bring about good results in the world, power in, to pray and, and see that uh, some see answers to prayer and things like that. It's a tiny reflection of God's power, but this power is still a good thing. It's still a good thing. And so... Um, just as I said, children want to choose for themselves. That's an imitation of God's attribute of freedom. So there is something in us that uh, is a desire to imitate God's power. I think it's the reason we enjoy being strong rather than weak. We are able to do more things. Um, um, all other things being equal, wouldn't you like to be able to lift your suitcase into the overhead bin on the airplane? Um, or carry the uh, bag of uh, salt for your water softener or something. You know, it, to, to be able to do something just in the physical world or change a tire or something. And that is, and, and dealing with the loss of that is uh, part of what we all will face as we grow older. And I would tell you the time that was solidified to me. Bob Krupp was the librarian at Trinity Divinity School in Illinois. He was also he would also compete every year in world championship uh, weightlifting contests, the heavyweight uh, category. So he was he could lift a book or two <laughs> as a librarian. But he was in his mid to late 40s, and I was talking to him one day, and he'd go to these weightlifting con championships over in Europe or something like that. And I, well, how, how, how did you do this year? Well, I placed fourth. He said, I placed fourth about every year because the same guys beat me every year. But he's fourth in the world in terms of heavyweight in this amateur weightlifting thing. And I said, how, do you, how are you doing You know, now in your 40s? How do you do compared to what you did in your 20s? He said, I lift about 100 pounds less. Now I started to think. If someone who's a world-class athlete at the peak of his ability and competing with other best athletes in the world, and that means they're all, because he's staying fourth, that means they're all lifting 100 pounds less. Oh. I thought, ah, I could apply that to myself. Um, that means that as we age, we lose some of the physical ability we had, right? Anybody want to argue with that? Anybody, yeah, probably anybody under 25 is going to say, oh, no, it's not going to happen to me. But, <laughs> but, it, but it happens, and that's why, that's why uh, professional football players uh, uh, have, uh, you know, there's only so many years they can play, and then 
Somebody else comes along and beats them. So how do we deal with that? Well, number one, we look forward to a resurrection body that, that isn't going to be frail. It's going to be a restoration of the, in fact, it's going to be better than the excellent health we have now because all the effects of illness and sin and weakness will be done away with. And uh, if all of a sudden I could see all of you with your perfect resurrection bodies right now, and you could see me, well, not only would I have hair back on the top of my head, but um, we'd all be in, in excellent, excellent health and I think much more attractive and handsome than we are even now today. Um, so we have hope, a hope that God's excellent creation of us in physical bodies uh, is going to be restored. But um, as we grow older, somehow God has planned that in this life we do age and grow weaker. There's a consolation in that, that Paul says, though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. He says that in 2 Corinthians. That is, we should grow spiritually and in joy and in, in maturity, in wisdom, in spiritual strength and spiritual power through our lives. And so that's, that's an encouragement. Um, but also that as we grow weaker physically, it just gives more opportunity to depend on the Lord uh, for uh, certain things and to enable it for him, him to enable us to, uh, to do what he wants us to do. But I still think it's better to be strong than weak. I think we instinctively all think that, isn't it? Wouldn't you like to have... Yeah, Jerry. <laughs> Same body you had when you were 25, right? Yeah, okay, me too, but it just isn't, isn't happening. I was on the treadmill yesterday and I was running over the gym and I was thinking, oh, let me put this up speed a little bit. And then I put it up to this speed and I thought, you know, when I was 50, I ran this speed for three miles, but I didn't yesterday run that. I ran it for about a minute. And I, now that was eight years ago. What's it going? Now maybe I could get it back. I don't know, but anyway, it's just happening. Well, um, but the fact that it is kind of, kind of discouraging to us means that there is in us a desire to imitate God's power to some measure. And then in other areas, a desire to have power to do good, I think it's a positive God-like characteristic. But the problem is that power is so easily abused by sinful human beings, just like freedom. Great temptation for misuse. So <clears throat> with power, there's this, uh, this Lord Acton in England said, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. And I think there is something of that <clears throat> in human beings. So how do we guard against that? Well, we just say, if I had a lot of power, I, of course, wouldn't misuse it. That's what we would all think, right? If I was president or people used to, if I, if I were king, you know, I'd do this. And I, but when people get into office, then there's that tendency. So people who realize that power can be misused have come up with a solution that I think is biblical. And that is misuse of power is best prevented by the dispersion of power among several different people. Example, that's why I think Jesus set up a system and the New Testament authors set up a system where elders are always in the plural. That is, you have multiple elders in every church because no one elder is always going to be right. Um, and uh, uh, I think that's a wise system. That's a system. There are 15 elders here at Scottsdale Bible Church. And the, the senior pastor, Daryl, for 25 years, had significant influence on the elders, but he didn't rule the elders. And uh, um, neither did any one elder uh, rule. That is, there's a kind of a, a multitude of counselors, there's wisdom. 
And then I thought about this. Three, four months ago, this pastor at a church in Illinois was on the phone to me. He said, Wayne, we need to get together a group of pastors and uh, kind of publish some guidelines. that There are people going outside the normal bounds of what should be believed now. These people believing open theism and people denying the doctrine of the atonement that's been around for years. We should put together a set of guidelines and we want to encourage other churches to follow and believe. And... Uh, and, and I thought, okay, that'd be, I'd be interested. And he said, and you know, I'll tell you what, Wayne, the only theology professor we need at that meeting is Wayne Grudem. And, and I just, I didn't say anything, but I thought, hmm, that's nice. And then, <laughs> and then later, well, I did, and I, well, I'm not proud of it now, in, in retrospect. And then later it hit me, I should have instinctively said, no. You don't just need one theology professor at that meeting. That's a guarantee for making a mistake, even if it's me. <laughs> you, you need more, so they correct each other. Okay? Um, and my, my heart rebuked me for not saying anything, and I just it was just a pride thing. He just happened to like me, but there are other pastors who like other theology professors who disagree with me on some stuff. And that's, uh, I think we, we need that, that interaction. Government checks and balances in the United States government, where the, the executive branch with the president and the legislative branch with the Congress and the judicial branch with the courts, they have a dispersion of power. And then there's a diffusion of power between the federal government and the states and the local government. And that has, I think, been a wonderful system given to us by the founders of our nation because they saw the abuse of power with the king in the situation where they had been before. In fact, there's a bad example in that very few absolute monarchs have remained really good throughout history. Now, I don't know. Um, maybe, you can, uh, maybe you can give me some examples I, I, of good, somebody who knows history better than I do. But, um, but when you get an absolute monarch with lots of power, usually he or she, uh, queens uh, as well, would uh, abuse it. And even David and Solomon, I've been reading through the story of their lives in uh, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings now in, the, in my Bible reading. And David was a wonderful king, but he sinned uh, toward the end of his life. And Solomon, incredibly wise, but then he turned away from the Lord and his, his many wives turned his heart away from God. So, and I think it, there's a sense of entitlement and privilege uh, that people get with power, and power is misused. So, be thankful that God gave you a will. We talked about that last week. You can make decisions. Be thankful that God gave you freedom. He gave you a measure of power. These are all excellent godlike qualities. We should encourage them and joy, rejoice when we see children developing and growing in them, but we need to use them wisely. Okay? But they're good. And be thankful for them. No? Okay, we'll go on. See if we can get through all of this. Um, summary attributes. <clears throat> perfection. God's perfection means that God completely possesses all excellent qualities and lacks no part of any qualities that would be desirable for him. Why I put this in the list of God's attributes, and other people have put this in a list, is that it's a way of saying anything you could think of that would be good, God is that way. Matthew 5.48, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, we won't fulfill that command, 
but that's the standard we live up to. God's perfection means it's impossible to think of any way in which God could be better than he is. He's better and greater than anything that could be imagined, and he lacks no desirable quality. And so uh, that's good. I mean, you think, oh, could there be could there be somehow a God in the universe that's better than God is? No. When you try to think of it, could there be a God who's more just? No, he's infinitely just. Could there be a God who's more loving? He's infinitely loving. A God who's more powerful? He's infinitely powerful. How about a God who is uh, who is more uh, who has more lordship over time? No, he's eternal. He's he uh, uh, that is he lacks no desirable quality. And he's personal, and he relates to us in, in an amazing way. Now, can we imitate God's attribute of perfection? We'll never be perfect as God is, but I think we should have a desire to improve. Uh, we should have a desire to improve morally. That's growth in sanctification in the Christian life. That's good. And also, I think that this idea of God's perfection is what gives human beings a desire to improve in other skills in life. The desire to do better is ultimately a God-given human quality and explains human progress throughout history. Why are we tearing down these buildings and building better ones? Oh, I don't know. We'd like better buildings. <laughs> you know what I mean? Why do people tear down old houses and build newer ones? Weren't the old ones good enough? Weren't people 100 years ago living in 100-year-old houses? Why don't we all live in 100-year-old houses? Well, because we want to do better. Why don't people drive cars that they drove 50, 60 years ago? Well, people keep trying to get better ones. Do you see what I'm saying? And why isn't a computer from 10 years ago, didn't that serve you well 10 years ago? Yeah, but I don't want it today. Why not? Well, we just want to do better. And so human inventiveness, human creativity, <clears throat> that's all driven by this desire to, I think, attain more of the perfection of God. And I think that's a good thing. I think it's, it's unique among human beings. Beavers build the same kind of dams that their ancestors did thousands of years ago, and they're just very happy with those dams. And spiders spin the same kind of webs, and birds build the same kind of nests, and they're very happy with them. Not human beings. We have a desire to do better, to do better, to learn more, to learn more about the universe, and just explore and discover. And I, I, uh, I think that's a God-given quality. Can it be misused? Yeah, it can make us really unhappy with everything, because nothing's ever good enough. So there has to be balanced with something else we'll talk about in a minute. But I think in but that desire to improve, to improve your golf game. <laughs> I'm looking at Duff out here. We just want to do a little, just a little bit better. And uh, I do anyway. I'd like to do quite a bit better, in fact. But <laughs> but, um, but that's good. That's 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 part of the joy of life. Okay. Um, whatever activity we have, Margaret's making jewelry now. And she loves to do it. And do I like, oh, now I'm going to try a different one. And she strings, that's fun. It's creative. Do one better than the last one? Yeah, okay, let's try. So um, anyway, that's in all of our activities. Uh, cooking. To, 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 hey, let's try to do something different. And there's a desire that's in us. And I think it's a God-given desire. To, so I don't think there's anything wrong with it, though it can be misused. And now we have to balance it with... Um, Blessedness. God's blessedness. Now, I love this attribute of God. God's blessedness means that God delights fully in himself and in all that reflects his character. 1 Timothy 6.15 
Paul says, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and lord of lords. And this Greek word for blessed is makarios. Uh, it's not the normal word that's translated blessed, but it's a word that really means happy, joyful, fu- fully joyful. And, God, and, and, and Paul says God is the, the blessed and only sovereign uh, that is the joyful, happy Sovereign, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And 1 Timothy 1.11, in accordance with the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. He's saying that God in himself is deeply, intensely happy, joyful. Now, just think about that a minute. The God that you worship, the God that you pray to, the God that you trust, he's happy. How do you feel about the fact that the eternal, omnipotent, omnipresent, holy, just, wise God of the universe is supremely happy? Wanda, you're smiling. Do you like it? You love it. Why? He wants us. Yeah, you're, yeah. It, I mean, when, <laughs> I mean, it does. It does make us feel good, doesn't it? That God is happy. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Okay. Okay. Yeah. If he. Oh man, what it would be like to have a God who's continually angry. Oh man, I know he has anger against sin, and that's part of God's character. But I think deeply, deeply at the foundation of what God feels, this is uh, this is a fundam- This is the fundamental attitude of God or emotion of God toward himself and then toward his plan as it's working out in the universe. He's the blessed and only God. And he delights in all that reflects his character. All that reflects his character. And that means he delights in his creation as it reflects his character and he delights in you as you reflect his character in many ways. Isaiah 62.5 is an amazing passage. As a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. It's talking about the people of Israel being uh, uh, like a bride. And then it says, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. And this is an amazing image. You know, you think of the last wedding you went to where the, the groom was looking at the bride and he was just happy. He was just joyful. And, and, and God is saying, that's how I'm feeling about you. When you are trusting him, when you're living in obedience to him, when you're walking in faithfulness to him, he rejoices over you. Um, whoa. So we have God's happiness that is um, in part because of his joy in his people. And that means his joy in us. I think that's, that's just wonderful. And as God rejoices in us, just to just to keep us from becoming too proud, he is really rejoicing in the reflection of his own excellent character. Because are, do you tell the truth? Well, it's because God has put in you a character that desires to tell the truth. Are you honest in your business dealings? That's part of God's character that he's put into you. Are you kind and merciful to others? That's part of God's character he's put into you, etc. So every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. And so he rejoices ultimately in the reflection of his character in us. Um, Now, imitation of God's blessedness means that we should freely take delight in and rejoice in all that is good 
in ourselves. That is how God has made us. Think about yourself. Is there some kindness in your heart? I think there is. As I get to know you, you're basically kind. Uh, is there some love for others in your heart? Love for your family, love for your neighbors? Yes, I think so. Are you happy about that? You should be. Is there some honesty in you? Some desire to do good for others? Are you, is there some trust in God in you? You see, now how do you feel about those things in yourself? I think we should be happy at who God has made us to be. I think we should take delight and rejoice in all that is good in ourselves. <clears throat> and rejoice in all that is good in others. We see other people, we can just smile and be thankful that they're doing right. They're doing good. And we rejoice in all that is good in God. Um, <clears throat> and that means I don't think we should feel guilt at all, but I think we should feel that it's right to be thankful for the creation. Now, um, George and Sharon brought these donuts this morning, and I was just, I had a maple frosted one, and it was really good. I don't think there's anything wrong with just enjoying the creation that God has given us, as long as we do it with thankfulness in our hearts to God. <clears throat> Saying, Lord, oh man, that's a, thank you, that's a good donut. <laughs> just there's an enjoyment of the creation that God has given us, and he wants us to do that. He's given us things for our enjoyment, and, <clears throat> and I think that's, that's a wonderful thing. Now, here's the question. Should we be fundamentally happy or unhappy with ourselves, with who we are? And there are Christians who so emphasize the fact that there's still sin in our hearts, and, you know, we're just, we're not loving the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength, and we're not perfect, and, and you just ought to keep meditating on that all day long until you feel really crushed. <laughs> I mean, and there's, there's something truthful about that. There's something, there's something good about the fact that we're not perfect, and we shouldn't be proud, and we should be humble before God, and, and, uh, and, and I, there's some measure of truth in that. But the other half is that God has done something good when he made us and then when he redeemed us in Christ and then when he's made our heart more and more to be like Christ. So should we be fundamentally happy or unhappy with ourselves? That's the question. It seems to me that this idea of God's blessedness and the fact that we are to imitate God's blessedness settles that question. I think that our fundamental attitude toward ourselves should be joy and happiness and delight. When you think about who you are, and you're different. You have different personalities. Some of you are outgoing. Some of you are more just quiet and reserved. Some of you have mathematical skills. Some of you have artistic skills. Some of you have personal relationship skills, and others are not as skilled in those areas. Some of you have scientific skills, and some of you just have good common sense uh, business skills. And Why not be happy with who God made you to be? It's not the same as everybody else. Different jobs, different relationships. But we'll just 
think about this. When you're in heaven, are you going to be happy with yourself or mad at yourself? Wendy? <laughs> happy with yourself. Yeah, I can see you smiling, so I thought, I'd... all right, you're going to be happy with yourself, Julie. Yes? Okay. So doesn't God want us to aim toward that? Not, not, not trying to deny the fact that we make mistakes and we need to pray for forgiveness when we sin, but... But basically, I think God wants us to have an imitation of his blessedness, his happiness. Mary Kay, are you happy with that? Yes? Good? Okay. I can see some of you smiling. God is happy. He wants us to be happy. And I think that should be the fundamental disposition we have toward life and toward ourselves. Okay? Are there troubles in the world? Yes. Should we pray about them? Yes. Are there difficulties in our families and our jobs and our relationships and our neighbors? And all? Yes. Should we pray about those things? Yes. Is God going to work out his purposes for history? Yes. Okay. Israeli-Hezbollah conflict, is that going to work out ultimately in long term? I don't know what the short term is going to be in the long term. It's going to work out for God's good purposes to be accomplished? Oh, yes. I have no doubt. Right. I think we should pray, but ultimately God's plans for history are going to work out. So, how do you feel today? Happy about God's happiness? Happy about who he has made you to be? Not just grumbling that he hasn't made you to be like somebody else, but made you to be yourself. Questions? Go on. It's fun. Beauty, God's beauty. We're going to we're going to we're going to get to the end today, and then we'll, and then we'll do the Trinity next week. Start the Trinity next week. God's beauty means that it's that attribute of God where He's the sum of all desirable qualities. Um, it's similar to God's perfection that said he doesn't lack any desirable qualities, but this focuses on the fact that God's qualities are desirable. When we think about them, they bring pleasure and delight, and, and we take joy in them. Psalm 27, 4, David says, One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. What's the one thing he wants? Well, Solomon will ask for wisdom. David said, I just want to be in God's presence. Lord, I just want to be in your presence and delight in you. And he knew that there was more joy in that than in anything. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there, Psalm 73, 25, and there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. This, this, just this sense of overwhelming joy and delight in God himself. He is the sum of all that is desirable. So it's not only that we have a God who is happy and who is infinite in all these other qualities, but also everything that God is is desirable and it calls forth approval and delight from us. Well, then wouldn't you like to be in the presence of that kind of God? Yes, in fact, the greatest joy of eternity will be to be in God's presence and behold the beauty of God to see his face. So Revelation 22 says, no longer in the heavenly city, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Um, they will see his face means that we'll be able to look at God more directly and more immediately than we've ever been able to see him. And in looking at him, we'll see that he is the sum of all that we desire, all that we find pleasant and, and wonderful and, and desirable and beautiful. That will be seen in God himself, and we'll, we will see him. Um, 
there's a there's a hymn that I've mentioned before called The Sands of Time Are Sinking. I'm just going to read the words to this because it kind of summarizes this delight in the beauty of God. The sands of time are sinking, the dawn of heaven breaks, the summer morn I've sighed for, the fair sweet morn awakes. Dark, dark hath been the midnight, but dayspring is at hand, and glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. So Anne Cousin, the author of this hymn in 1857, she's thinking of herself as dying and going to be in the Lord's presence. And she says, Dayspring is at hand, and glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. The king, there in his beauty, without a veil is seen. It were a well-spent journey, though seven deaths lay between. The lamb with his fair army doth on Mount Zion stand, and glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. O Christ, he is the fountain, the deep, sweet well of love. The streams of earth I've tasted, more deep I'll drink above. There to an ocean fullness his mercy doth expand, and glory, Glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace. Not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand. The lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. The beauty of the Lord, of God the Father, the beauty of Christ, the beauty of the Holy Spirit. Do we imitate this attribute? Yes, we reflect God's beauty in our own lives when we exhibit conduct that is pleasing to him, that is in itself beautiful or desirable. So 1 Peter 3, 4, Peter says to Christian wives, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. There's a beauty in a Christian character, especially one that has been lived over a number of years and has deepened and developed, sometimes through hardship and struggle, but has deepened so that there's an attractiveness about, about, uh, about a person's character. Um, and then uh, Titus 2.10, Paul says to servants or slaves, they should not pilfer or shoplift or steal, but uh, showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. He's saying, if you're a Christian, your life should make beautiful what it is to be a Christian. Your life should adorn the doctrine. Your conduct makes it attractive and beautiful. Ephesians 5.27, Jesus is in the process <clears throat> of purifying the church so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So again, the emphasis on beauty is an emphasis on moral, spiritual beauty in the New Testament. That's the primary emphasis. But I do want to say also that this delight in the beauty of God, I don't want to completely rule out the idea of delighting in physical beauty. So we can delight in physical beauty of nature or the beauty of a building, 
We're not going to try to build an ugly building here when we add on to this, uh, where there's a big hole in the ground here at Scottsdale Bible Church. We're going to try to build a building that looks attractive. And you don't try to build a house that has crooked boards on the outside of it or something like that. You try to make the walls square and straight. And, and, uh, and, and, so, and you try to make the interior of your home a place that's attractive. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. It's a kind of reflection of God's desire for beauty and his attribute of beauty, ultimately. Uh, beauty of a painting or of a home or the beauty of music. Uh, those are good God-given characteristics if they're done with thanks to God. But beware, society can make physical beauty an idol. And, of course, uh, then, then it can, soup, can overshadow. And people with physical beauty but out, without moral character that matches it, of course, that's something that's wrong and, and not, not pleasing in God's sight at all. That's God's beauty. He's the sum of everything desirable. Last attribute. Well, this is number 30 out of 30 that we've done, I think. The glory of God. Um, in one sense, God's glory is just the excellence of his character. But there's another sense in which God's glory is the, is the um, created brightness that surrounds the revelation of God himself. And in so, some sense, then, it's something created and not really part of his own being. Um, and often the Bible talks about God's glory as this bright light that surrounds his presence. Who is the king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Or Psalm 104, Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. Um, that glory of the Lord went before the people of Israel, the pillar of fire uh, by night, the pillar of cloud by day. Uh, it came and filled the tabernacle, and Moses spoke to God, and then his face had this radiance about it when he came out of God's presence. In the New Testament, the shepherds are out in the field in Luke 2, and it says, an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. That is, all of a sudden, there was dark, it was pitch black, perhaps, at night, and then all of a sudden, wow, there's this bright light surrounding these shepherds, and it's the glory of the Lord, and they're filled with fear because they know this is showing that God, God's presence is here. Uh, Matthew 17, 2, Jesus goes up on the mountain uh, with Peter, James, and John, and all of a sudden he's transfigured. That is, his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. There's, a, there's this, the, the, the glory of God was all of a sudden shining forth from him. In Revelation 21, 23, the city that we're going to live in one day, the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. What are we going to get? Where are we going to get light in the heavenly city? Just like where they got light in the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament. That is, it was the glory of God in that place that gave the light. There wasn't even any candlestick or anything in the Holy of Holies. And so now the whole city is going to be the Holy of Holies, and the glory of God is going to fill it and be its light. So God's glory... God's glory is an appropriate outward manifestation of his excellence. Bright light that surrounds, and, and when we behold that, it will call forth from us awe. The shepherds were filled with fear. But then I think also delight when we realize that we can be in God's presence and he will not destroy us. And there will be a great delight because it's a manifestation, not just of light and brightness, but sort of a warmth and, a, and an excellence about it that we'll sense. Here's the presence of God, and it will kind of be a way of manifesting all the excellence of his character. 
We'll never be able to fully comprehend God, but what we can see will fill us with joy and worship, and then God's glory will fill the city in which we live forever. Um, that's, a, that's an amazing thing that he calls us to live in, in the light of his glory. Now, somewhat we reflect that in, even in this life. Uh, Paul says, uh, 2 Corinthians 3.18, We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This is in the passage where he talks about the radiant glory that, sh that was shining from Moses' face, but it was fading because it was the Old Covenant. And so Moses put a veil over his face so the people couldn't see that it was fading away, but it faded. But Paul says that's the same glory that now we are being transformed into and becoming part of us. Did you ever think about someone that you've met that's, that's just a, a Christian who walks with the Lord and you say there's something just shining about that person's life? that's just kind of radiant about that person. Now, it isn't like a physical light quite, but it's just a, a joy, a sense of the presence of God. And I think that in that sense, in a little way, he's made us to reflect his glory even now. I suspect that when we get those new heavenly bodies, those new resurrection bodies that are made perfect and more, more healthy and stronger and more attractive than any body we've had in this life, I think that there are some hints that there will be a brightness about them, a radiance about them that's reflecting something of the glory of God. Daniel 12, 3, those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. Uh, Matthew 13, 43, the righteous, righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, 15, 43, that a body, the death, it's buried in the earth. It is sown in the earth in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. So um, I think that God has made us in a way to reflect his glory. And I think maybe in the age to come, we'll even in, in, a, in, a, in some physical sense have a manifestation of a brightness or radiance about us. Okay. Hmm. Exciting. Comments or questions at all on all of that? Byron? Uh, in Genesis 1, God said, let there be light. Before that, do you, do you believe that his glory was shown forth as, like in, in Revelation 21, uh, 23, where, where Revelation is, or glory is, is light, and prior to that, was, before he said, let there be light, was his glory not lighting things? Right. Uh, no, I don't think there was any physical creation before Genesis 1 so that there wasn't any physical light surrounding God's presence because the God was just, he just was. There wasn't any such, there wasn't any space. So there wasn't anywhere uh, to be. So that uh, I think that, yeah, I, I suspect that let there be light, maybe this created light, that it's at least this created light that surrounds God's glory. There was light. Now maybe it's some of the heavenly lights too, but those seem to come a little later. John? Along with that, uh, the sun wasn't made before we had... Right, we didn't have sun. We didn't have the sun. Right, light. right. So it may be this created light around the presence of God. So, yeah. Oh, good things. All right, next week we do the Trinity. Let's try to sing this uh, hymn that I had for last week, but we didn't get to it, which uh, gives us a sense of peace and trust in the will of God. See you next week. <laughs>